Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the What Culture Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Telford, joined by Josh Brown. Hello, Scott Telford. Hello, Josh Brown. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I had a really nice weekend, yeah. to be honest. Went down to London to Hyde Park, saw Lana Del Rey. It was very, very Bit good. Of the old live music. I love live music. I'm not sure if I've ever talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you cannot get enough. I'll tell you what else we can't get enough of, which is video games, yeah. ironically enough. And we're going to be covering a whole bunch of different news stories across this podcast. And one of them will make its way onto the YouTube channel, funnily enough. So if you want to see our little yeah. faces... Scott Telford. As we record this. Like Lana Del Rey like Lana Del Rey said, I already messed it up. It's you, it's you, it's all for you. I'll do anything you want me to do, including this podcast. I'm not gonna lie, I don't know who Lana Del Rey is. I know she did a song about video games and that I got was annoyed. A lyric that... from video games the song. Yes. So, yeah. And then okay, and then whenever I Google video games, I for a while it was just her popping up. And if I thought she was Sandra Bullock, but it's not. Like <laughs> <laughs> she really isn't, you know. No, she really she's isn't. sort of like the opposite of Sandra Bullock. But um anyway, in terms of video game news stuff. Josh Brown, let's talk about the state of EA slash single player slash multiplayer stuff and the fact that EA are on a bit of a run right now in regards to single player things. One of the news stories doing the rounds that a Black Panther game, which we kind of knew was the case anyway, we knew that thing had been leaked, um, but this has now finally been officially mentioned by uh, EA's new studio, Cliffhanger Games, headed up by Kevin Stevens, um, who worked on God of War, Halo Infinite, Shadow of Mordor, and Shadow of War, and a whole bunch of Call of Duties, dedicating yet again to a single player framework. Now, it's hilarious at this point because EA, almost 10 years to the day, were claiming single-player games dead. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. And now they are, you know, front and center, one of the biggest teams dedicating the most money to single-player projects, whether it be the Dead Space remake, whether it be the Jedi trilogy now. I assume it'll be a trilogy. We've got more to say about that later on in the podcast. Um, But yeah, EA front and center. Single-player was always valid, and they finally (laughs) realized it again. I would rather them hold up their hands and say, look, we got it wrong. We're going to actually double down on single-player games rather than say, no, we're right, and plug on (laughs) with live service games, no, one is no one's buying, mm-hmm. right? I think they learned this the hard way via Star Wars because obviously mm. they went all in on Star Wars after 2013 and they put a bunch of games into production. They went all in on their live service approach with Star Wars Battlefront and yes. Star Wars Battlefront 2. They ended up canceling Amy Hennig's single player Star Wars game. And like you said, around that time they were saying, no one wants survival horror games. Single player games are dead. <laughs> and then a little title called Star Wars um, Jedi Fallen Order. Fallen Order was the first one. That was the first one. That one came out and sold gangbusters, sold like 12 million copies, and they said, whoa, 
We Hold can on. make money here. Hold your horses. <laughs> it turns out they're not dead. Let's whack a lot of these into production. Yeah, people actually do want video games they can finish, funnily enough. Funnily, we mentioned this as well because we did just do a video on uh, you know underrated or overlooked single-player campaigns on the channel, which is doing gangbusters. Go check that thing out. Lots of criminally overlooked single-player campaigns. I think there's a substantial amount of people crying out for single-player stuff in the land of the live service. I feel like especially Sony committing to so many live service games like Fair Games, like Foam Stars. I mean, it's one of those things where I was like, who who's asking for this? Who was asking for this thing? It's always this constant attempt to do a Fortnite, to do an Overwatch, to do something that is in the vein of an established thing, and it's just so nakedly copycatting that thing. Yeah. When I feel like so many of us became gamers, or would consider ourselves gamers, or love the medium of gaming because of single player stuff. Look. That is true, and I agree. Gosh. I love single-player games above all else. I'm not going to say all live service games are bad. There are loads that I love. I think you can make a live service game with passion, with yeah. energy, with innovation at the heart of it that lands that is just as good as any single-player game. But mm -hmm. the issue is what you were mentioning there. So many of them are trend-chasing. So yeah. many of them just feel like a game you've played a million times and are bare-bones versions of that same mm. game at that, and they come out broken, they come out buggy, they come out with a roadmap that never happens, <laughs> looking at you, Anthem 2.0. <laughs> and that's, to me, the core issue with those titles. And I do think that, you know, the likes of Sony, which obviously, I'm not sure if you know, but I like Sony games. <laughs> I like some of the stuff they've made. Yeah, um, fanboy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Horrible. <laughs> they feel like five years behind the curve because it's like, why are you getting in on this now when we have kind of en masse rejected yeah. live service games that look like this and we're re-embracing single player games. Like mm. to me, the lesson that you learn after Star Wars and um, Fallen Order or after Elden Ring, mm. the lesson isn't maybe we should make more live service <laughs> games. It's no, look how much people love these dense, um, high quality single player experiences and look how much they sell. Elden mm -hmm. Ring is a new IP. Yes, it's from a beloved studio with a lot of identifiable game mechanics, but it's a new IP, it's single player focused. Mm -hmm. It made the most money ever. <laughs> and like that to me is the lesson that even EA is starting to learn from. So there's a couple of things I want to mention here. We'll talk about live service stuff just in general. One in regards to EA is just how well that EA Originals program has done. Um, you know, funding Joseph Farris's work, it takes to obviously a co-op game, but still fundamentally enough, not a live service, fundamentally something designed to be finished. Um, Unravel was another one that came from the EA Originals program, yeah. um, which in its sequel again went co-op, but it's still very much designed to be finished and very much not trying to be an overly predatory monetization driven thing. Just video games, <laughs> just games that are designed to be finished, that aren't designed to have dailies weeklies, monthlies, etc. Um, that's all I want to see, and it seems like that's also what Keith, uh, Keith Stevens shaking Keith Stevens. Uh, Kevin Stevens over on EA's new studio Cliffhanger Games when he's detailing the Black Panther game. I'm going to read out the quote that comes with the press release here because um, it might be, this might be ridiculous but at least it's down the right uh, the right lane that we want. Um, Stevens saying that we're dedicated to delivering fans a definitive and authentic Black Panther experience, giving them more agency and control over their narrative than they've ever experienced in a story-driven game. Um, the studio wants to build an expansive and reactive world that empowers players to experience what it's like to take on the mantle of Wakanda's protector, the Black Panther. More agency than you've ever experienced, Josh Brown. Here's the thing with this uh, quote, right? Do I believe it's going to be the most agency <laughs> I've ever had in a game? Is it going to be the most story-driven game ever made? Mm. I don't think so. Ken Levine's I, having kittens in the game. I like that that's what they're aiming for, though. Yes. I like that that is the goal that they have set out to achieve. Like, that is miles better than trying to mm. come out the gate and say, well, we're trying to make a story game, but we're also trying to make a multiplayer <laughs> game, and you won't believe just how well the story works in 
in the multiplayer matches. Like, no, 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 no. This at least is ambitious. Yes, it does kind of sound like marketing guff in a way. It kind of reminds me of when Microsoft came out and they started saying, look, Project Dark is in the works. It's going to be the first quadruple A oh, game. Oh, perfect dark. Oh, perfect yeah. dark. Sorry, uh, it's going to be the it's first. It's still in the project stage. Quadruple A game. Yes, and then we saw what happened with that. It's still in the project stage. It's apparently a mess internally. High ambitions don't always mean high quality results, mm. but I just kind of it makes me excited, man. <laughs> I don't buy into it one hundred percent, but it makes me excited. I feel like Star Wars as well. Like Fallen Order sold really, really well. Jedi Survivor, I still think is. I mean, it's still getting patched. It's still receiving a whole bunch of patches. But that is, um, you know, you to- think about the most optimum version of that game. And if you play it on quality mode, you're totally fine. It's yeah. the performance mode that tanks the whole thing. Um, but that is one of the most recommendable games of the year, if not one of the you know top three games of the year so far. It certainly is one of yours, um, and there's a lot of different things to recommend about that. But it does sort of speak to a changing of the guard within EA. I feel like they tried so much to just you know monetize and monetize and monetize in regards to the FIFA Ultimate Team packs and everything else. Yeah. And this year, I think it's later this year, it might be next year. We have the um, you know EA's Football Club is going to be their sort of next continuation because the FIFA license is going its own way. Um, but you want to hope that the last ten years of EA just trying to to milk everything dry is dying or dead and hopefully you can point to the likes of Black Panther and Star Wars and the EA original stuff as you know where they should have been all along. I think it has to be. I think EA will always have some kind of multiplayer slash live service experience but I just think they've made too many mistakes. Like mm. you said some of the titles you mentioned there that I mentioned earlier Star Wars Battlefront previously um, Battlefield 2042. Yeah. Like, all of these high-profile live service games, Anthem and Anthem <laughs> 2.0, they keep coming to mind, um, arrived and, and died. And it did the company no favors. It made them no money. It gave them, you know, a critical kicking. It put them in a bad stead with fans. And now, um, you know, we have this, you know, plethora of single-player games from them, including the Dead Space remake, mm-hmm. um, which came out at the start of the year as well. And it does seem like that's the future if we look at interviews with other studios that they have, including BioWare, it kind of seems that while the likes of Dragon Age 4 and Mass Effect 4 might have started out with kind of live service ambitions in mind, they have course corrected, at least in the, in, in the state of uh, Dragon Age, which, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, you read into that project and apparently it still has some of those live service elements, but they, they're trying to get away <laughs> from it. You know, they're trying to make the right moves to kind of return to why people love that franchise mm-hmm. to begin with, why people love these developers to begin with. The proof, of course, will be in the pudding. <laughs> they might mess up um, a Black Panther game. They might not do it justice it might be bad but Mm. i just kind of i just hope not because i think for as much crap as ea gets rightfully it gets a lot of you know hate because it's made a lot of bad decisions over the past 10 years and then some it's got so many talented developers so many talented studios Mm. and i just want them to kind of feel unshackled not have to bend to these corporate whims of monetization and predatory live services and just be able to make something they want to make and if it comes across as corny in the interviews so be it <laughs> at least it's like it like i said before it's in the right direction and um, i feel like a lot of the hate that ea got across the last 10 years is because they were so great across the 2000s it was only at the very end of the 2000s when the uefa champions league game started getting the card packs and the microtransactions and whatever that's where it all started back in the day but before then at least what we grew up with 
with was an EA that was associated with like the Simpsons game, the Lord of the Rings games, the James Bond games. Um, and especially, you know, Everything or Nothing was like their attempt at taking a, a film sized budget and doing a video game that could be a main installment in a franchise. And they did the same thing with the Simpsons game as well. And like all of that back then, EA's name was a lot more highly regarded. Like it was yeah. the whole it's in the game thing was like, you know, a bit of a slogan and whatever. But they set a bar and it, they f fell down over and over again across the 2010s because they just couldn't hit that bar anymore. Not that they wanted to, they just wanted to monetize. But now that that approach has completely failed, yeah. you kind of hope that somewhere in there across the thousands of people employed there just sort of says, remember when we used to make video games? And then finally now, the shareholders can go, do you want to make some video games? <laughs> maybe we actually do that again. Hey, hey, that hey, made maybe us a lot of money. Know, maybe we maybe should do, do a little... Have you got any more of those? <laughs> <laughs> any more Star Wars did pretty well. Hey, Star Wars is a big brand. <laughs> what about Marvel? That's in the kids like Marvel. Why not um, I don't want to cut them too much slack because, I mean, they are making a lot of right decisions, but they do keep cancelling Titanfall 3, which no, is not a great idea. Yeah, please make that. Um, but yeah, I think across the board, just as an industry, I don't know where your head is from this because I know no, we talked I. a lot about. <laughs> I know we talked a lot about sequels and remakes and safe bets, and we we are definitely in an era of safe bets. I oh, think. Oh God, are we? Uh, yeah. But. We're also in an era of single-player games. Those safe bets manifest in the likes of Resident Evil 4 Remake. They manifest in the likes of Starfield and God of War Ragnarok mm. and all of, you know, really good games like that. And to me, I love it. It means I get games like Final Fantasy 16. It means I get games like God of War, like I mentioned. It means I get Spider-Man 2, Starfield. I'm eating well this year, Scott Tilford. <laughs> it might not be meals that, you know, I haven't had before, mm. but I'm enjoying them all the same. Yeah, and they're very hearty meals once you get stuck into them as well. It's not like the CS games don't have a lot to offer if you just want to spend some money and have a good time. I think that there is a whole conversation media-wide about uh, how much the likes of Hollywood are just banking on nostalgia, etc. Um, but yeah, when it comes to EA, hopefully more positive futures than we've had for the last few years. Next thing down is just the state of the Borderlands movie, which we're not going to go into detail on, but I wanted to mention um, that we covered this in a video over on the channel. Go check that out. Um, the audio for that might also be on this feed as well. Um, but that is just the fact that the Borderlands movie is on fire. Ten different writers couldn't bring it together. Uh, reshoots, etc., going on with that. Um, however, another news item that is doing the rounds is a Jedi Survivor sequel. We just talked about Star Wars stuff. Um, but this is leaked over on LinkedIn um, through a respawn uh, writing position listing, um, saying that we're looking for a highly skilled principal game writer who will embrace our philosophy and share hard-earned expertise to help us create an incredible Star Wars experience for our players in a fun third-person action-adventure setting. What else are they making, Josh Brown? <laughs> what else are they doing? They better think, maybe that's Titanfall 3 that has a Star Wars spin, I don't know. Maybe it is, who knows? <laughs> Listen, man, I don't, I don't know if you know this, Scott Tilford, but I liked Star Wars Jedi Survivor. I thought it, it was on performance really mode good. Or was it, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I like playing it on quality mode. I thought it ended um, in a place that I won't spoil now, but in a really interesting place that yes. you know nicely sets up a third game in my eyes hopefully a trilogy kappa and if they can continue the momentum that i thought they had mm. with jedi survivor i am all in for this i thought it was an incredible game but more importantly i thought it was an incredible next step and it makes me incredibly excited to see where they go from there mm -hmm. and how they can up the bar even more how powerful can cal Get. What can we do when EA and Respawn manage to unlock the true potential of the machines that we currently have? I just think there's 
Ah, oh, there's so many possibilities. Yeah, there. they have carved out such an interesting space where you're sort of blending like old school Metroidvania, Metroid Prime approaches to a 3D space mixed with almost Soulsian checkpointing, yeah. mixed with like little like dashes of like platinum style combat where you can do all these really cool like stylish flourishes and flips and evades and everything else. But there's still a level of challenge there that's almost more Soulsian in itself anyway. And I think that all those elements do give the franchise a unique identity. Like there is a really fun like feel to it when you're getting used to the moves and you're unlocking different things and everything else. And um, when that game hits, which is a bit where it's not in too big of a level where the frame rate can hold together, I had an absolute blast with it. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I just hope they put the time into optimization this time around or next time around um, to make sure that they you know, hit the ground running kind of thing. Because it feels like it was built for a quality mode, 30 FPS thing. Obviously, the graphics really sing in that mode. There's a lot of different reflections on the water and everything else. Um, it's just one of those things where, um, for whatever reason, I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like it's like an overlooked, like a underdog franchise. I feel like it's almost yeah. like the, the Andor of gaming, where it's like someone's friend who's a Star Wars fan is telling you to play it, but it doesn't feel like everyone is playing it. And it's, 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 its own fault. Yes. This one could have been its big breakthrough moment. Obviously, it's hugely successful. You know, we just talked about how much the original game sold, mm. but I feel like Jedi Survivor in particular could have catapulted the franchise to the next level in spite of it only being a next-gen exclusive game and obviously having a more limited install base com compared to its predecessor. Mm -hmm. I just felt like the quality was there, but rightly so, its impact was lessened because all anyone was talking about <laughs> were those performance issues. And it sucks because there's a great game there. So when they come around to making the third one, I don't want any of this shooting themselves in the foot with their own blaster business. <laughs> I want to see them, I want to see the franchise fulfill its potential. Like I said, I want it to be as big as I think it deserves to be. Yes. And I want it to have that kind of instant recommendability. I want to just go up to people mm. in the street. And I don't, I don't really want to do that, but you know, <laughs> theoretically, I want to be able to go up to someone in the like, street hey. and say, hey, play this game. It's amazing. You'll have a good time mm -hmm. and believe it and not have to add those asterisks or caveats of, well, it's a good game if you can get over this stuff yes. that, you know, shouldn't be... Oh, this much of a problem after it happened the first time around and you didn't address it the second time around. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things as well where you think about where Star Wars is. And I remember thinking this playing through Jedi Survivor where I was like, Star Wars has had so many different identities over the last like 30 plus years where like, you know, you can argue that the original trilogy was a lot more grounded and gritty. It's why people hated Return of the Jedi at the time. And then it was like, you know, the prequel trilogy, oh, it's too much for kids. It's too over the top. The alien designs are too cutesy and quirky and ridiculous. We want the gritty stuff that was always there. And then when you watch them all in a row, it's like, no, they do make more sense than you'd think in yeah. terms of thematics or tones or whatever. And then, you know, you got the Rogue Ones, you got the sequel trilogy, and then you play something like Jedi Survivor, and it just manages to somehow tightrope walk all of it. Like, it pulls in, like, you know, um, creature designs, alien designs from the more quirky side of Star Wars. It's doing a more grounded story, like Andor type thing. Um, it has the more over-the-top cinematic, like, lightsaber propelled moments that, like, the most high-octane parts of Star Wars has. And I was, like, playing through it going, like, this is actually what Star Wars needs to be. Right. It's not, like, the the feeling that the sequel trilogy had, it's so confident. Like, I feel like Respawn have one of the only completely solid grasps on what Star Wars even literally is. Um, and it's one of those things where I like my the gritty side of things, like Andor or Rogue One. Um, and it's, it was just that sort of thing where I was like, oh, if you just, if they were somehow able to direct the, the next few movies or just they were like, they're given the keys to the kingdom kind of thing, Kevin Feige style, yeah. I feel like they get Star Wars and they can walk that line between all of it all at once. And like yeah. characters like, I'm going to forget his name, but it's that um, 
I was going to call him Turd Boy. It's not. <laughs> it's not actually Turd Boy. Who's the Turd Girl? Turd. There you go. It's because Toggle's in Final Fantasy 16. I was like, well, it's not. It's not Toggle. That's a dog. Um, but there is a little frog boy, yeah. and he's uh, he has a lovely voice. That's the dude that voices uh, Raz and Psychonauts. But they managed to have him in there alongside a way more grounded story about um, almost like troops being left on the battlefield and what happens when your commander abandons you, kind of thing. And I was like, there's so much in here. There is, man. I fully agree. I think with these two games, they've really carved out their section of the universe. Mm. They've really produced something special in terms of their own individual world building, but connecting it to the wider Star Wars mythology, the characters they have introduced. I can't believe how much I love Cal Kestis, how much after like just thinking he was initially kind of bland in the first <laughs> game, I love how they, they've developed him. By the end of that first game, I was really interested in his story. And by I the love second, the time jump. Yeah, I just think that time jump allowed them to add layers to Cal and the mm. rest of the team that were kind of solely needed after the first game, made the second a little bit darker, a little bit more heavy in terms of its emotional content. And I kind of just hope they managed to keep adding those layers on, add to that complexity and give us, like you said, this, this piece of the Star Wars world mm. that we just love to um continue to explore. I want to see how it changes and I kind of I want to see it adapted as well. I want to see it influence the movies and the TV shows. Maybe not even in terms of directly bringing over characters from the game, mm. but just looking at what they did, having that acknowledged and having that referenced. Just put Turd Boy in Ando season two. <laughs> I'm just you just slip him in there. He fits right in. Um but yeah I mean that's the thing. It's either they're playing masterful, I'm talking about a wider uh you know Star Wars planning level thing. Either they're, plan they're playing 4D chess and Cameron Monaghan's going to show up as Cal in one of the shows, um, or they're not talking to each other at all because this character has existed in this mythos since 2018 now, and he's yeah. barely had a whiff of any recognition from the main canon since then. You know what, man? I thought after the first game, it would have been really cool to see Cal and Cameron Monaghan mm. in like a live-action Star Wars thing, whatever yeah. the hell it was. But after the second game, I kind of don't think they can do that because mm. my favorite thing about the second game is how much authorship you have over Cal. True. Like when they adapt him to screen, they'll almost have to canonize one depiction of It'll Cal. be the bearded box art version. Right, there you go, yeah. right? Which which would work. Of course it would work. They can't, it's not like they're completely restricted because of this, mm. but a reason I love Cal is because I made Cal my own. I yeah, gave him yeah. a hairstyle that I thought fitted him. I gave him a beat and I thought fitted him. <laughs> an outfit, I played him in a certain way within the parameters that, they gave, that the game gave me mm -hmm. that I felt a sense of ownership and authorship over his development in that game. And I know that if they did adapt him to live action, the version of Cal on screen wouldn't match the version of Cal that I played as in Jedi Survivor, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating little wrinkle to video game protagonists generally, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. I mean, I think if they're going to commit to a look when they're sort of, they have like a middle installment that to me felt like a Mass Effect too. Like if this, if yeah. we come out the other end of this feeling like the overall story is as grand as Mass Effect was, then Mass Effect 1 is adjacent to Fallen Order in terms of it's setting so much stuff up. And then the um, Jedi Survivor is so propulsive and it just, it kicks into such a great gear, like for the majority of that story. Um, that like, yeah, that does that then become the definitive uh, look for someone like Cal 
podcast is. Um, let's talk about video game history stuff because down here, uh, written up by Insider Gaming, is that the Video Game History Foundation have said that 87% of all classic games are critically endangered. And like I said, this comes from Insider Gaming saying that just 13% of all games released before 2010 are commercially or readily available today. And that does include remakes, remasters, or re-releases. That's crazy. It, it's absolutely effing horrific. <laughs> Insider Gaming also say, um, you know, there's some key points uh, surround how only 12% of the PlayStation 2's library is available uh, with various outdated US copyright laws uh, blamed as the main reason why. And um, there's a review happening across 2024 to try and rewrite these various laws. Um, and hopefully that'll rewrite some stuff. But it just seems like, you know, for as much as the various preservation efforts are done to let you play most of gaming history, um, right now you're only really getting access to a tenth of everything from the last 30 plus years. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we go any further, I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, Masterclass. With the amount of time we spend discussing and analyzing video games on this channel, it's always good to understand exactly how these experiences are put together. And fortunately for me, I can do just that with Masterclass. With Masterclass's streaming service, you can learn from the best to become your best, studying and growing with over 200 plus of the world's leading instructors. For me, I've been having a blast using a class on video game design by The Sims creator Will Wright to find out exactly how game mechanics are designed around player psychology as well as learning how important playtesting is to shipping the titles that you and I both love. But it hasn't stopped there, as I've also been brushing up on my practical filmmaking skills directly from my favourite movie director Martin Scorsese, as well as trying to get back in the cooking game with Roy Choi's amazing course on intuitive cooking. Seriously, my kitchen is a mess, but my belly has never been more grateful. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to courses on your phone, computer, smart TV, or even via audio-only modes. Even better, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and 88% of members feel that the service has made a positive impact on their lives. And to put the cherry on top of that cake, right now, What Culture Gaming listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com forward slash gaming. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash gaming. What's that? You want it one more time? Well, that's the URL masterclass.com forward slash gaming. Right, now I'm going to watch Tony Hawk try to teach me how to ollie properly. 
I'll see you all soon. And we've always known that video game archiving, video game preservation, like you said, has been bad. But when you see the actual numbers yeah. like that, it is just crazy. You know so many games are not readily accessible. You know so many games are going to get lost to time. But the sheer volume at which that is happening is genuinely like i get upset <laughs> over it because not only are those great games now that people can't play but mm. it's you know hundreds and thousands of people hours that people have like dedicated to their artistry in all in their expertise over the years and their entire life's work mm -hmm. that is just not accessible and then therefore not recognized by players and critics or whatever today. And that just doesn't happen in any other medium. There's no. always, you know, movies that get lost, reels that get destroyed, music tapes that are, you know, found in a bin 100 <laughs> years after the fact in a museum or something. Mm -hmm. But those are rare. Those are a handful of things. Whereas in the video game space, it's it's just the norm, and well, that is it's, oh, it's such I a always shame. wonder, and I continue to wonder, because obviously, like uh, Insider Gaming's write up mentions that it's these sort of US laws that are preventing a lot of the uh, copyright side of things. You have to assume that that applies to the likes of when the GTA Definitive Edition released, and they couldn't get all the songs again. It was a whole thing when the Tony Hawks, um, you know, one and two got remade, and they did manage to eventually get all the songs, but the initial announcement for those games didn't include everything. Um, yeah, I just want a way to to play any game. Like you think of a movie, and you go on something like, I mean. It's a weird thing because it's kind of service by service. I find that Amazon Prime are better at like an archival quality than like Netflix don't care about having a history of all movies. Yeah. But Amazon will give you some version of it. Um, nine times out of ten or every every time I've gone to try and find something, there's been an Amazon thing that I can either buy or rent or whatever. There's not like this omni service for gaming. Um, the nearest to it is Xbox. And I do think that Xbox are like head and shoulders of a PlayStation and Nintendo when it comes to giving you old games. Um, just because they have so many different games that were either uh, ported to Xbox Live or across the 2000s and you can still play those versions on series systems or they just have um, just so much stuff from, from days gone by, years gone by kind of thing. Um, in the case of like something like Sonic, I was like, you know, searching for Sonic games as I do of Gosh, an afternoon. And, uh, and they had like Sonic Fighters. They had all these different random Sonic games on there. And I was like, oh, I can kind of just sit and play through every single Sonic game. Yeah. And for the vast majority from Sonic Unleashed to Sonic Generations and whatever, they're all just on Xbox and they're not on PlayStation. They're not on Nintendo. And I always wonder, is that because most of the third parties would rather charge you for a re-release. Yeah. And we kind of saw that with Ubisoft where like as much as on Xbox they let you play, you know, Assassin's Creed 3, Black Flag like the original ones. Uh, Assassin's Creed 3 then got a re-release and the original got delisted. Black Flag is getting a remake so I wonder if they'll delist Black Flag. And it's just that thing where I was like if you're Johnny Gaming with like putting the, you know, meshing the fingers together making all the business deals, yeah. is there just so much money in charging you for that 87% of games that you can't access? Um or do you just do right by people and try and ape other mediums and just make it available? I think there is just too much money to be made. Yeah. You, know, you look at something like Resident Evil 4 and its remake, like the original had a bunch of different parts that mm. were constantly resold and made so much money <laughs> every single time they came to a new console. Mm -hmm. And then they were able to remake it completely and again, make loads and loads of money for that. And I'm fine with that practice as long as it keeps a version of the original intact. Like Resident Evil 4 was one of the most accessible games in terms of the amount of people who can access it to regardless of their machine, mm. and that is a good thing. My issue is that by ignoring a huge percentage of the gaming library, it means that even like big franchises aren't safe and secure. I know mm. I talk about it all the time, but Silent Hill is crazy hard to experience 
not just in its original format, but in any format. Yeah. Like, if you want to go and play Silent Hill 1 now in the UK, you're looking at a second-hand market of £70 mm. for that PlayStation 1 disc. And Silent Hill is one of the most, you know, famous video game franchises of all time. So if Same I, with Metal Gear? Yeah, if I look at stuff like Metal Gear, look at stuff like Crash Bandicoot, look at stuff like Silent Hill, and think about how hard it is to access... The original versions of those mm. games, but in some cases, just any versions of those games, I just think about all of the hidden gems, all of the stuff that wasn't deemed popular enough to get a remaster that's fallen through the cracks. I mean, say what you want about film, right? Mm. But at least in terms of the canon of great movies, it's not just the popular stuff mm. that is accessible today. You can go into the history of film, you can find some of the most obscure stuff on the planet and cherish it. I just don't think we can do that with video games in anywhere near the same way. And that's a shame because then it does build a library. It builds a canon of what is accepted and what mm. is deemed worthy enough to be preserved. And who gets to decide that? Just because something sold well? Just because yeah, something yeah. scored high? Nah, people have been making great stuff outside of those parameters for decades. And I want to play that stuff. That's no one, more interesting. Absolutely. It's one of those things where like when they started building the PlayStation Plus, like the new version of PlayStation Plus, all the PS1 games and everything else, all five of them that they managed to put on the archive <laughs> service. I was like, that's brilliant because you have so many to pick from and if they need to go back and do those deals to get Soul Reaver on a, P on a PlayStation 5 then just do it. Like it's one of those things where I just don't know enough about the potential licensing side of it and I also don't know enough about, you know, I don't know who's if anyone is paying Amazon to archive some ancient, like Lawrence of Arabia or something on the on Amazon. Like it, that, does that go between the different distributors? Like what does it mean to have that movie archived? Does it yeah. does it cost something or not? Um, and are, you know, are the third parties culpable? Are they, you know, they, they maybe do maybe Maybe they don't want to pay those fees. Would they rather just hang on and do a remake later down the line? I feel like it's a much bigger um, you know, discussion, but I feel like the Video Game History Foundation themselves just sort of like laying it out, just saying 87% of your potential childhood is not accessible yeah. is ridiculous. And it's one of those things where I ended up getting a Steam Deck um, specifically because I wanted an emulation machine. And I get I could have got a PC, <laughs> but at the same time, I wanted something that was more accessible and I can use on the train and whatever. But it's I'm still shelling out half a thousand pounds to get something yeah, to get access to these old games unless like you said you get lost in the re in the retro market which is in itself receiving a humongous boost right now um in terms of the average price for old games just because the accessibility to these games is just so scarce like you can't just go play metal gear solid one no unless you have a ps1 mini or you're waiting for the master collection and that's becoming increasingly jarring to me as someone who does this job because as mm. we get older and as generations kind of pass by our reference points aren't even accessible to people who might have been too young to play them at the time or mm. weren't even around at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how can we have this dialogue when the stuff I'm referring to, someone else can only experience secondhand. Someone can mm. only watch walkthroughs of it or watch people like us talk about it. Like that's not, to me, that's not a solid foundation to build any kind of critical anything that's a really good point up, you know yeah well if, if we were doing we've talked about uh, like every now and then over the, the last sort of few years of doing this job like why don't we have some sort of boot club style thing where you tell people oh, hey we're going to play this next week go play you got a week go play a few levels and check in back uh, you know check in with us the week after and we'll talk about it but like you said they might just not have access to those games like yeah. there's no way of actually saying like oh this is the definitive place to go play Soul Reaver or whatever it well, is I know again you know I know it's not as easy as it is for film I know there are licensing issues like you mentioned mm. I know there are issues 
issues with the hardware. You can't just pop a Metal Gear Solid 1 disc into a PS5 and expect it to work. I know it's not magic like that. No. But that said, when we talk about, you know, stuff that I think is quite you know, mainstream and popular. For instance, if we're talking about the best Spider-Man games, yes. I kind of have to second guess myself sometimes because it almost feels like the conversation is moot before it started mm. because those Spider-Man games, like they're going to cost people a lot of money to get or they might not be accessible at all. Like if we talk about Shattered Dimensions or Web of Shadows, which mm. we always discuss as one of the most underrated and best Spider-Man games Maybe the games most overlooked Spider-Man game, yeah. Absolutely. But it's, I, I kind of start to second guess myself because I'm like, yes, it makes for an interesting discussion, but the average person isn't going to be able to go out and experience that mm. unless they own the machine that it was on and managed to track down a wildly inflated copy. <laughs> and it's crazy that that can happen to, again, a character as big as... Spider-Man. It also speaks to how ingrained the assumption of forking out more money is because whenever we have those conversations about anything that was licensed, like you talk about any movie tie-in or whatever, there's an assumption that you won't be able to play it. Yeah. There's an assumption that it's expired and the company hasn't forked out the money to keep it online to make sure it's available to you. Um, Something like Spidey, the PS1 Spider-Man game is my personal favorite um, and I have no access to that. I have a version of it on Steam Deck um, but I have no official access point to that. Hey, get a PlayStation 1. I've got the original copy. Oh, yeah? I'll I'll send it your way. If retro prices weren't 60 English pounds, then I would dive in. This is it, man. Like, all year, I've been wanting to buy um, Resident Evil 2 and Resident Mm. Evil 3 Nemesis, the PS1 versions, uh, because I haven't played them since I was a kid, and in the case of Resident Evil 3, never managed to completely finish front to back. And yet, those games are as much as a new price PlayStation 5 game in some cases. You know, I'm looking to pay £40, £50 on the second-hand market, and I've had to keep putting it off because I can't justify forking out <laughs> all of that, especially in a cost of living crisis when we're trying to also buy in player through Final Fantasy 16 mm-hmm. and what have you. So it just, it's Gollum's sucks. having your arm off. Gollum uh, absolutely is, <laughs> certainly is. Um, so it just sucks from that perspective. But what sucks even more are the online games that mm. have had their servers turned off that even if you did track down a copy, you wouldn't be able to play. That's, That's an a whole entirely, other thing. Yeah, it's an entirely different uh, conversation, right? Because it's like, how do you archive something that literally isn't up and running anymore where even if you did make it accessible from a production standpoint um, no one's keeping the lights on from the server's perspective Mm. so you can't even experience it at all Ah. I'm going to get on my soapbox right now because I loved Call of Duty Warzone Scott Hilver, not sure if you know this played it all the way through lockdown Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they've taken the original version of that game offline now like they they kind of whittled it down to the map that was just caldera which was right. its final um big kind of content drop but now they've taken that offline and all you can play is warzone 2.0 <laughs> that's 500 hours of my life two years right. of my lockdown experience that is now just a memory yeah. that is now just a bunch of youtube videos and people who were there at the time no one would be able to experience now what i experienced for those 500 hours mm. And what a bloody shame that is. I tell you what, it is really nuts when you start lining it up with like other mediums. Like if we talk about brilliant past albums, maybe I'm telling you about the first Metallica album or the Beatles or something, you can go listen to it. You can listen listen to it within like 10 minutes. If we talk about Mortal Kombat, Shaolin Monks or Dead to Rights or Soul Reaver or whatever, you just can't. You just can't do it. And it's kind of nuts when you really start breaking it down that way comparatively with other easily accessible or should be easily accessible media. If you think of a film, you can go find it, like I said, on Amazon or you'll be able to find some sort of streaming art 
archive online. YouTube's taken quite a lot of that stuff up as well. Yeah. And um, where you can just pay some money and get it through your Google account or something. Games just don't have that. Like Steam's pretty good for it, but only if you're on PC. Yeah. Like it's on the console space, you are you are like boxed in. You will get exactly what's on that storefront, and there's no attempt to go wider than that. Into my head, again, I know it's difficult, but in my head, there's no reason for it. Like it's not. We're not. No, talking, like active business reason. That's for it. it. We're not talking about an underdog industry anymore. Mm. We're not even necessarily talking about a, a small growing industry. Like this is the most successful entertainment sector. Like a new GTA comes out, it makes a billion dollars <laughs> in three days where mm-hmm. it would take, you know, a Marvel, even the biggest Marvel movie, a good few weeks to reach that milestone. Like the money that is involved in this industry, the mm. amount of um, popularity the industry has, the amount of people it reaches, to me, there's no excuse to not have some of that funnel back into mm. the preservation of the art form because that art form needs to be appreciated, especially well, my- uh, to go back to stuff that just got it off the ground to begin with. Yeah. Well, my thing as well is that I, I love the likes of No Clip. I know Danny uh, Danny O'Dwyer. It's either him or Danny Dyer. Danny, Danny O'Dwyer. O'Dwyer. <laughs> Over on uh, No Clip just bought a whole bunch of archival tapes and archival materials to try and preserve some games as well. But I feel like recently, you know, you've either got documentaries about old games and like sort of purchases that happened. The Completionist bought a whole bunch of uh, Nintendo 3DS games but on the eShop before it shut down. There's a really good video over there and um, with him figuring out how to even buy that many games on a 3DS. Um, that's one thing. You've got no clip, like I said. You've got a. I mentioned Atari 50 all the time because yeah. that is in itself a playable version of Atari history, where you know, like it'll be 20 odd years of games that is on that cartridge slash disc or wherever you play it, um, and you play through like a Talking Heads documentary that dips in and out of the games themselves. I love the idea of various um, legacy companies, Ubisoft or EA or whoever, figuring out their own versions of Atari 50. Like, do the interviews, get the people back in who made them, and make sure that those games are available and tell those stories. You'll make money that way. If yeah. you're that bothered about the bottom line, there are still other ways to make money that way. Give me a Mortal Kombat collection, Edward. Why not? <laughs> it's, he, keeps talking, he keeps tweeting about it, big old boon. He's always saying, like, oh, does anyone want Shaolin Monks? Yes, we do, Ed. Yes. Uh, your friend and mine and our lovely co-worker, Ryan, <laughs> um, recently got a haul of PS1 yes, and PS2 games. Uh, he posted Shout out to Ryan Nicholson, one of the finest editors of the land. And he, uh, put, he, he managed to buy Mortal Kombat. Charlotte And I just thought, I've never been more jealous of a living or dead person <laughs> because I want to play that game it so It was the much. first thing I downloaded on my Steam Deck and it was it's great, it's a lovely game, but just make it available. This is it, right? There might be people listening to this thinking, you two are old men, you know? Yeah. You're, you're old, no one cares, no one wants to play Gran Turismo in the words of Jim Ryan. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a... Sony boss says no one wants to play a PlayStation game. <laughs> no, Carry on. No. There's obviously a, you know, a huge amount of people who emulate stuff on Steam, like like you've alluded to. But to me, man, the, the onus shouldn't be on the fans. Like, you don't expect fans to remaster a, a, a Blu-ray of a beloved movie. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I know we keep making these comparisons, but it's just in no other industry would that be the norm or would that be accepted as just, that's what you got to do. <laughs> and that is uh, nightmarish because, mm-hmm. like, you, I think you made a great point there by Thank pointing you. out someone... Uh, some some something as big as Metallica as an entity, like you can just go on Spotify or whatever and listen to their entire catalog, their entire history, mm-hmm. front to back, and there's a joy in that. 
One of my biggest, sorry, I'm, I'm cutting you off again. No, one of my on. biggest problems with the industry is the lack of optics that we have on video game development, the lack of understanding that the average gamer has as to how games are put together, and um, the budgetary side of it, the coding side of it, the different licensing deals, etc. Like I said, there are so many ways to um, educate the masses on, on that stuff. Every big budget movie has a making of. Like, yeah. I mean, if you grew up with DVDs, then you probably likely had all the making of discs for that stuff, or you put the director's commentary on. And games have experimented with director's commentaries every now and then, but I feel like overall, if you're gonna, de- if you could delve into all that stuff, it would only be a net positive. Like you're yep. only going to educate people as to where IPs came from. And again, if you really care about the bottom line and you're Ubisoft, why not do a history of Assassin's Creed that lets you play different levels, that lets you access those different games? And um, it'll only make people give a bigger hoot about Assassin's Creed Mirage. That's it. Like you're gonna, you, I find. You know, I'm, I love bubbling within franchises. Yes. I find I appreciate the franchises that I play so much more when I can chart that development, where Same. I can see where they came from and where they are today. You know, playing through all of the Devil May Cry games, playing through all of the Ninja Gaiden games, Metal Gear Solid, God of War was Play a big all the one Kirby's, mate. Definitely not the Kirby's, but maybe, so good. maybe all the Crocs, maybe all the Gecko. All two of them. The Gecko. Yeah. Yeah, I'll play those. <laughs> um, it just, like you said, it makes you appreciate that development more. It makes the franchise feel more significant. And surely it only, you know, makes for a more passionate fan base that's more entrenched within these games and not just what's fresh um, from these games. I will say is kind of a potentially final thing on this yes. point. I don't know if we're going to keep going We should probably it. go home at some point today. We probably should, but <laughs> okay, okay. I, I've been away for the long weekend, man. I He's got the banter. I, I, I don't got the banter, but I, I, <laughs> I've been excited to be on the podcast. Um, I will say, like, I love that we're in this era now of remasters mm. and remakes, genuinely. Mm-hmm. I referenced um, Resident Evil at the start of this podcast, at the start of this point, mm-hmm. and Resident Evil 4 Remake is my favorite game of the year by far Shout. at the moment, but I don't want to ever live in a world where Resident Evil 4 Remake replaces the original. I would rather, for as much as I love it, I'd rather it not exist. Yes. Because even when a remaster project or a remake project only tweaks certain aspects. Maybe it's a slight shift in the art style. Maybe it is literally just, you know, adding more pixels in there or adding more text, high quality textures in there. To me, it's a transformative thing. You look at the Crash Ensane trilogy, which Mm. I love and I thought was amazing, would recommend it to everyone. But I don't like that the original Crash games aren't accessible because mm. you could say the, the the remaster does everything they did and maybe even a little bit smoother, maybe even a bit better. But to me, like even the subtle changes in art style mm. make the original valuable because that's, to me, big enough to kind of shift what is my favorite and what isn't. I like the weird 90s polygonal oh, dude, um, harshness of the original Crash. Yeah. While I appreciate the new art style. I'll always love the original so much more because there's a beauty to that. It's not just because, uh, like, they didn't just do that because that's what the limitations at the time were. Like, mm. they worked around those limitations to create something special. And I think we often ignore that when we remaster games and we update games. Yes. To uh, We assume that this was always the original intention and they only the games only didn't look like that because they weren't able to look like that and mm-hmm. it's like nah that's not always the case there's artistry there 
um, even if it is technically inferior. And I don't want to get into a world where we just say, oh, you know, screw the guys who made that game. Yes. This is this is the this is the real version. You talk about like uh, the amount of different companies that are trying to monetize nostalgia, but the irony there being that they'll take the old thing and then try and do this approximate uh, approximate version of it for a new audience when the most directly monetizable thing would be actually releasing the original. Yeah. Let people have those original sound effects, those original um, feelings that they have, and maybe touch up the frame rate. Do the most, do, uh, that's all I ever want from my quote unquote remakes. I just want the old version uh, available again. And so there's maybe a way to do that that feels like it taps back into that. Nostalgia. More directly. I still think the Master Chief Collection did loads wrong. Did yes. loads and loads and loads <laughs> wrong. But those games, or at least in terms of combat, evolved, like giving you the option to toggle between the new version and the old version. I want to see that as standard. That always felt like it should be the standard. Yeah. And I can't believe that wasn't more widely mm. adopted. Other games have done it since, but considering how many remake and remaster projects we've had, nowhere near enough, in my opinion. No, and especially, yeah, like that's one of those things that's like, you want to remind people how far we've come and like try and get a new audience in or we were, like show a new audience what why it was a big deal in the first place. But yeah, things like that, like I said, like I mentioned the Atari 50 thing as a general approach. The Master Chief Collection could also be a general approach. If you really want to uh, do a new graphic style, just let people have that toggle. Like it's just, all of it hovers around the overall point that we just, we have accepted that most of our gaming history is not accessible. And that's yeah. the overall, that's the, the biggest problem with this stuff. Um, I have no other way of segueing into an outro, but this has been the What Culture Gaming Podcast. I've been Scott Tailford, that probably your host, some sort of outro, Josh Brown. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure, Scott Catch Tailford. Catch you next week. Nice to be back. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.